Hello and welcome to another episode of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, we're going to take a little bit of a turn from some of the other episodes that we've discussed about because I've had a question that's just been kind of in my head for a while and haven't really had a time to truly make it an episode and I wanted to change that with today's. And what I specifically would like to discuss is when I was growing up, I was told that to become a saint, um, as recognized by the church, you had to have had performed at least one miracle in your life. And that is something that's always perplexed me about, A, what is a miracle? Um, and let alone, how do you do that? And then also, if you had the ability to do miracles, why would you only do one? So it's probably starting from a misconception that then generating a lot of other wrong questions off of a poor line of thinking. I acknowledge that up front, but it's something that I've always wondered about because I remember hearing stories about when John Paul went to Mexico, people who were sick just had his shadow passing over them and then had become healed. Um, and again, I have no idea if that's true or not, or just conjecture that the people had said, uh, but since you are so involved in, in actually, I believe you're determining whether a person can become a saint. I don't know if you're still doing that project or not, but um, at least that was my understanding of what you were doing at the time a, a year or so ago. Uh, I wanted to know how miracles play into this and what miracles are, really. Um, yeah, well, I'll uh, just help to make uh, the vocabulary more precise. Um, but yes, the, uh, the process for the cause of someone's canonization uh, has, has several stages because the ultimate goal is to determine, first of all, um, is this person in heaven? Second of all, is this person someone that God wants to raise up as an example for the rest of us? Because those are two distinct questions. And we uh, discern that by, first of all, seeing, did the person live heroic virtue in their lives? And that's the first part of the canonization. Well, the first part is that somebody is actually promoting their cause, which, which takes a fair amount of commitment. And that has to be done ultimately through a diocese and uh, often is, is supported by a religious order because there's a, a, a group, you know, a, that, that has uh, some stability and also has some, uh, some funding to carry through. It's a fairly extensive work that needs to be undertaken. You need to generate the, the kind of evidence uh, for someone to write a dissertation, essentially proving the thesis that this person exercised heroic virtue. And you have to explore all of the different aspects of the person's life so that they're not going to cause scandal of course, all of us live lives that are a little bit mixed because we are all sinners. Um, now, how significant our sins might scandalize others is uh, going to be different for one of us from the other. Uh, but uh, exploring the person's life and determining that question of heroic virtue uh, and gathering all of the evidence, all the correspondence, trying to draw out any of the objections that people would have. Um, you know, maybe a, a person behaved badly to one or another people or in different areas. We really want to get the full picture. We want to be totally honest and expose everything we have. 
about this person. Uh, so, so that's all generating whether that person is even good, uh, a good candidate, really. And that happens at the diocesan level, the local level, and then that's submitted to Rome. And there are people in the cause, uh, the congregation for the canonization of saints who take up the, the cause, the evidence, read through everything, and basically write that dissertation called a positio, a position paper that the person exercised heroic virtue. And that's usually several hundred pages, depending oh. on how much, uh, you know, someone like John Paul II, who was incredibly, there's an incredible amount of information about him, things that he wrote, things that he did. And anyway, to, to generate all of that into a position paper. And then there is a discussion, the term devil's advocate came originally from that discussion. They don't call that person that anymore. Uh, but they did in the past, and somebody is going to try to disprove and bring up all of the objections. So we, we want a, uh, a defense attorney or a prosecution attorney or whatever it is. We want a devil's advocate to try to expose as much as possible. So that's all at the level of, you could say, kind of natural uh, exploration, research, investigation, discussion, and, uh, and, and is the, really the longest part of the process. Going together with that is uh, looking for some supernatural supports. One is that there is a, an actual uh, devotion to this person and that people, you know, when this person died, people say, this person is a saint and I want to start praying for them, uh, to them. I, I, I really believe that they're in heaven and that they can hear my prayers, that they'll intercede for me. I felt close to this person on earth for a variety of reasons and I still feel close to them and I think that they're with God. And so there's a kind of, there's a devotion. Now that we, we see that as a movement of the spirit and then we have to discern, is it a movement of the good spirit or the bad spirit? Uh, is that really the Holy Spirit moving in people because they see something good? Is that the bad spirit capitalizing on something? And, and so, uh, but the fact that there is a movement like that is also important. There's no, cause for the canonization of my grandmother uh, and you know people aren't turning to her for a lot of prayer and there isn't a, a movement that way uh, doesn't mean that she's not in heaven doesn't mean that she wasn't a good woman it means that that's not where the lord is working at this point so when you have those uh, that's that's a supernatural sign and then uh, as people are praying to that that individual and and asking that god would confirm that that's where we're looking for miracles is after the person's death. Mm. And that's a confirmation from heaven that God also wants that person to be singled out. And so he's going to do something miraculous to get our attention that that person is, you know, that their prayers are being heard, you could say. So that's where uh, we ask for favors through that individual's intercession. And that has some layers to it because you know, a lot of times when we've got something serious, grandma's got cancer. And so I'm going to pray to, you know, the sacred heart and I'm going to ask our lady and I'm going to pray to St. Jude and talk to St. Peregrine. And then, uh, by the way, you know, uncle John was really holy God. I'm going to ask him <laughs> and mm -hmm. whatever. Oh, and then grandma gets healed. Uh, well, why? Well, I don't know. Could be uncle John could be the sacred heart of Jesus. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, so, so there's a, there's a little bit of an, uh, uh, there needs to be an ability to focus on what was happening when, the, when a miracle took place. 
And then there needs to be a confirmation that it was actually a miracle, that it wasn't that just that grandma got good chemotherapy and that's why she was healed. Uh, it wasn't because of Uncle John's uh, intercession at all. It's just because the doctors were doing the right thing and the chemotherapy was working out. So can we actually isolate it as a, as a miraculous event and, and then prove that before a, a panel of people, uh, generally including non-Catholics, even non-Christians, that makes the process a little, even a little bit more credible that people who don't have a vested interest in this person working a miracle and would want to come up with other explanations. And when we get to the point through that kind of uh, very formal investigation and uh, a tribunal, a, a trial is established and uh, things are argued out and evidence is presented. And if there is no natural explanation for what's happened, then that takes place, first of all, at the diocesan level, and then it takes place again in Rome and at the congregation. And when all of that plays through, then the, the Holy Father confirms, based on all of that evidence, that there was a miracle there attributed to that individual's intercession. And so then we have uh, the evidence. In order to beatify somebody, ordinarily we need one miracle in order to canonize two miracles of this of this order of investigation examination study trial now there may be many things people say oh gosh you know saint Gianna uh beretta mola like i i prayed to her and my my toe was healed you know or i i was having complications in pregnancy and then it all worked out and uh you know i was trying to find a job and and I got a job. You may have a lot of those kinds of things. Those are a little hard to investigate and to prove. So in terms of your question, if you can work one miracle, why not work more miracles? Um, well, probably some of these canonized saints worked quite a few miracles, but maybe at the more personal level and the, the sort of less dramatic level and things like that. Um, so, so that's the basic structure for the cause for canonization. Uh, establishment of heroic virtue based on an extensive examination, an absolutely comprehensive examination of a person's life. Uh, and that done before a, a panel of people, of, of critical individuals. And then uh, that leads to the declaration of a person being venerable and that they exercised heroic virtue and that that case is proven. So the Holy Father would then declare them venerable. And then uh, with one miracle, they could be beatified. Again, it's at the discretion of the Holy Father. His hand is not forced. And so we have the authority of the successor of Peter also involved in the process. If he feels for whatever reason that it's not a good idea, then he doesn't have to do anything. And then uh, with a, after someone is beatified, if there's another verified miracle, then the person could be canonized. Now, canonization, beatification is for local devotion. And so people associated with the same religious order or people from the same region of the world, the same diocese or, or ecclesiastical province um, are, are approved to continue venerating that person even in a liturgical way. But then uh, canonization is an acknowledgement, again, that there is a universal devotion. So it's not somebody who just has local appeal, but their, their devotion has spread uh, much farther and uh, around the world. And then canonization is, uh, extends the, uh, 
the devotion to the person, the, the liturgical, we call it a cultus, uh, which has a bad sound in English. And that, that's why I was looking for a synonym. But anyway, the uh, veneration of the individual is extended to the, the whole church. Anybody can, uh, can take that up with confidence that the individual is in heaven and that God is really confirming them for their exemplary witness and is a, a good person for us to turn to. So just the last comment you see in my screen, there's an image on the wall behind me of Blessed Karl or Blessed Charles of Austria. He was the last emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And all of the investigation, he died in uh, 1922. We're just coming up on the 100th anniversary of his death. And on April 1st, to that, uh, 1922, he died. And then it took a number of years uh, and things like World War II also got in the way before the, uh, his, his life was investigated. Now he was an emperor, so there's a lot of stuff and really getting a comprehensive investigation of his life, even though he was only emperor for a few years and died at a relatively young age in his early thirties. Still, there's a lot of stuff. So it takes a while to go through that, to work through the objections. People made false accusations about him. Those things had to be thoroughly investigated. And uh, eventually they were able to put together the positio and, uh, and prove heroic virtue. I think sometime in the the 80s, he was declared venerable. I, I can't remember exactly for sure. But then uh, in 2000, uh, well, actually already in that period, there was a miracle, uh, a nun in Brazil who had a chronic, a lifelong knee problem with severe uh, repeated infections and, and it had been proven incurable over, over much time. She was so talented that she was the superior of their, of their convent in Brazil but was totally bedridden. And a novena for Blessed Carl had arrived at the monastery. They didn't really know very much about him. And she was kind of desperate and a little bit skeptical, but she decided to begin the novena. And she was, again, uh, half-hearted about it, but she made a concrete decision. Okay, I'll trust in this. We'll see if this venerable Carl has any, you know, uh, maybe, maybe this is what the Lord wants to do. In the morning, she was totally healed and got up out of bed and walked for the first time in years. So uh, the, the investigation was able to make that connection between Carl and that miraculous healing. And that miracle was used for uh, Carl to be declared venerable in 2004 by, by John Paul II, which has a kind of sweet connection because John Paul II was named, was baptized Carl. Carol Wojtyla was named after Carl of Austria. And so he got to beatify his namesake. Uh, but anyway, I'm still, I'm still helping with the cause. I'm promoting devotion to Blessed Carl and I'm uh, a US delegate for the cause. I'm not doing the proving and I'm not doing the investigating and I'm not doing any of that work. Just, uh, just spreading devotion in ways just like right now. Fair enough. So, um, so, okay, so, so first off, imagine if all of us had to go through this thing of knowing that after we died, people were going to go through every element of our lives and then write a hundreds of page paper on us. That is a, that that's, that's something in itself is to think about what would be in your thing when they deep into every crevice and good, bad and ugly and everything in between. Um, you know, that, that, that's, that's a thought process within itself. So, so, all right. So first off, even with the miracle standpoint, 
it's I'm coming from a position that was wrong from my beginning thought. It, 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 this isn't about miracles that may have happened while the person was alive. This is people praying after the fact. So with that being said, can living people create miracles? And, and if so, how? Well, it's not a it's not a magic trick, you know. It's not a skill that one develops. It's uh, the kind of thing that that God does uh, for His own purposes. Uh, generally, we see the witness in Scripture of uh, spreading the gospel, of being a compelling sign to get people's attention and help them to pay attention to the content of the message of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. Um, so I, you know, I. Uh, there's a, there's a wonderful movement called Encounter Ministries that's worth looking up, and they really specialize in uh, praying for, for healing and even miraculous healing. And I said it's not a skill, and it's not, but uh, it's going to build on some principles, which is, first of all, an encounter with the person. It's not about wonder working or just doing magic tricks. It's about having an encounter with a person and bringing a person into encounter with the Lord. And so in Encounter Ministries, they have a little, uh, you know, a, a normal process for praying with people for healing and have had tremendous success. I know the founder, he's a friend of mine, Father Matthias Thalen. And when he came and talked to our seminarians, he prayed with one of our seminarians who had uh, no cartilage in his knees from, uh, he's, a, he's in his 50s. He's an older man. He's a priest now in the Altoona Johnstown Diocese. And uh Father Matthias prayed with him and he has cartilage in his knees now. We have before and after x-rays, you know. So that happened downstairs here at St. Vincent. And uh, those kinds of things are, you know, they certainly happen. Now, it's not totally under Father Matthias's control. He's He has prayed for and, and received a lot of healings for people. And, and there are some who seem particularly gifted and that's a part of their ministry. But it's really for all of us as Christians in the gospel, it says these signs will accompany uh, believers. And it talks about casting out demons and also healing the sick. And uh, so, so I think it's good for all of us to pray for uh, even physical healing and uh, even miraculous healing and, and pray that people's lives would really be touched and changed by the grace of God. And, Fundamentally, it's about having a relationship with God. How do you do it? Yeah, you pray and and uh, let God do his thing. Well, we're at a little bit of a time crunch with today's episode here, Father. So I, I greatly appreciate you, you having this conversation with me. And, and we will continue it as I have some additional thoughts that I'd like to ask you about in our upcoming next episode. So thank you, everyone out there. And we will be with you again next week.